Our sermon text this evening comes from Luke 5, verses 27 through 39. So if you have a copy of Scripture, I invite you to open up uh, as we join together to read. Luke 5, verses 27 through 39. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you promise that you work through your word, that by your word you produce faith in our hearts and our minds that we come to see you, we come to understand who we are before you, and that you proclaim to us a message of grace and a message of mercy. And so, Lord, we pray that you may work through your word this evening, that we may see you clearly, and that you would be pleased to work in our minds, hearts, and lives as we reflect upon your word. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen. December 24th, 1944, Elizabeth Vinken heard a knock at the front door of her husband's hunting cabin. She was there with her son Fritz, and they had just decided to postpone their Christmas Eve meal. You see, her husband was away fighting in the war. They were hiding out in this cabin, and they thought he was going to be back this night, but it turns out that he wasn't going to return until New Year's Eve. And so they wrapped everything up, put it away, and they weren't expecting any further company. So who then could be knocking on the door? Well, Elizabeth got up, strolled to her front door, opened up, and to her amazement, she was met by three American soldiers, one of whom was badly wounded in his leg. And yet, despite her shock, and despite the law that prohibited German citizens from housing enemy soldiers, she invited them in, and she offered them her postponed Christmas Eve meal. And as they were feasting, and as she started to tend to the wounded soldier, they heard another knock at the front door. This time, Fritz got up. He got up, made his way across to the front door, opened up, and to his surprise, he was met by three figures as well. Except this time, it was two German soldiers and a high-ranking German official. He immediately knew the danger that he was in. He was stunned. But before he could react, Elizabeth got up, made her way across to these soldiers, and told them to check their weapons at the woodpile outside. 
She told them that it's Christmas Eve and there'll be no shooting here. And so, with slight hesitation, all the soldiers checked their guns and they squeezed into this tiny hunting cabin in the woods and they shared a meal. Enemies gathered around a table in the very midst of war. And this story is inspiring. It's perhaps heartwarming, but it's also a story that is full of danger. And you might be saying, well, yeah, no, duh. There are soldiers on enemy sides in the midst of war who have guns, probably hiding weapons. But that's not the danger that I'm talking about. The danger that I'm talking about uh, touches on something that a pastor I know loves to say. He says that you don't really know somebody until you've shared a meal with them. Because to eat with somebody is to invite them to see you and to know you. You don't tend to know people. You might know an acquaintance, but if you've had a meal with them, you always tell people, yeah, I know them. We've had a meal together. And so that night, Elizabeth invited a set of enemies inside to share a meal, to be seen and known in one of the most intimate of settings. Enemies were invited in to spend an evening as friends. And I wonder how you or I would have responded in this type of situation. We like to think that we would be like Elizabeth, naturally. But I also think that we would be tempted to keep them outside, that the threat of danger would keep these enemies at bay. It can be easy to imagine that we'd let in enemy soldiers in the midst of this horrifying war, in the midst of a cold season, in the midst of the season of good cheer. But would we invite our enemies over for Sunday dinner? Does the outsider, the one who acts different, the one who looks different, have a seat at our table? I question how readily I would make room at times. And yet, this text shows us that Jesus goes out of his way to invite sinners to be seen by him and to be known by him. But he doesn't meet them on mutual terms like these soldiers. He doesn't meet sinners under a ceasefire. But instead, Jesus pursues sinners in the very midst of his, their warfare and rebellion against them. And he pulls up a chair for them. And so as we see Christ do this in this text, we're going to look at Luke 5 under three headings. We're going to look at an unlikely invitation, some unwelcome guests, and an unprecedented arrival. An unlikely invitation, unwelcome guests, and an unprecedented arrival. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus extends an invitation to Levi. He goes out and he sees Levi, a tax collector, sitting at his booth. And the text says that Jesus approaches him. Now, this may seem like an inconsequential detail, but it is freighted with danger. It is freighted with social nuances that are beyond what we would expect because he's not going to simply visit a friend at the office. He's not simply going to visit the place where Levi conducted business. Instead, and Jesus goes to the tax booth, he's approaching the very symbol of Levi's sin, corruption, and betrayal. You see, tax collectors were despised in Jesus' day. The Roman government needed tax collectors, and so they had a bidding war, and they would give the position to the highest bidder. And once they got that position, they were responsible to make all of that money back, and they were allowed to keep any of the profit. And this usually meant that they would employ corrupt practices to become insanely rich. Levi was likely extremely wealthy, and he likely secured his fortune off the backs of his fellow Israelites. And tax collectors were so despised that they were unclean. 
They had no religious standing in the community. So when the text says that Jesus goes to approach the tax booth, it would be like Jesus approaching a car thief at a chop shop or approaching a kingpin at a stash house. It is approaching the very seat of Levi's sin. And Levi was probably used to having eyes on him all the time, furrowed brows, sideways glances, looks of outright animosity at this despicable person. But Luke says that Jesus sees Levi. He sees his sin and his shame. He sees the disgrace that he carries before his fellow Israelites. And yet he moves towards Levi to extend an invitation, an invitation of two words. He simply says, follow me. Despite everything that Levi has working against him, Jesus sees Levi, goes out of his way to approach him, and gives him the opportunity to become a disciple, to become an apostle. In response to sin and unworthiness, Christ offers Levi mercy. And we see that Levi accepts this invitation. As Jesus sees, approaches, and calls Levi, we see that Levi rises, leaves everything behind, and follows Jesus. And when the text says that he follows Jesus, it doesn't simply mean that he's taking a stroll to the market with Jesus. It doesn't mean that he's going to join for a couple stops on the miracle tour that Jesus is about to embark upon. No, it's saying that he is abandoning the entirety of his former way of life and is choosing to follow after Jesus for the rest of his days. This is a wholehearted, full-fledged commitment on Levi's part. He sets everything aside, turns away from it, and sets his sights on Jesus alone. And this is a picture of what genuine repentance and faith looks like, is it not? Jesus finds us sitting in the midst of our rebellion and delighting in our sin. He looks upon us with mercy. He sees us, but he nevertheless approaches us, and he calls us to see clearly as well. He calls us to see ourselves clearly and to see him clearly. He tells us to look around and to see that the things of this world can neither satisfy nor save us. But he promises us that he can do both, and he will do both. And so by his grace, we see him, we see ourselves, and we realize that this God is telling the truth. Sin will never satisfy. It will always overpromise and underdeliver, and ultimately leave us for dead. And that news could rightly leave us despairing if that was all that Jesus had to show us. But as Jesus exposes our sin, he just as readily and just as quickly shows us grace. He lifts our eyes up from despair and helps us to meet his gaze. And he tells us, follow me. You've done nothing to earn this. How could you? But I have done everything to give it to you. I died on a cross in order to give you this invitation. So come, rest in my finished work and follow me. Levi saw, and Jesus called Levi to see, and he also saw. But we see that Levi doesn't merely accept this invitation, but he expands the invitation. He is so overjoyed by the grace that he has been given that he throws an extravagant party. This isn't just dinner. This is an extravagant feast. And we see that this is the only appropriate response, the only appropriate response to what Jesus has done for Levi Christ has freely offered him salvation and grace. 
something so valuable that he is willing to leave behind his sin, his corruption, his entire way of life in order to follow Jesus. Levi knows what he's been given. He can see it clearly, and he throws this party so that his friends can see it and receive it as well. He doesn't want to share in this alone. I'm personally quite convicted by the zeal that Levi shows here. I love Christ. I love my unbelieving friends and family. But I can often shrink back about talking with the, about the gospel with them. I want nothing more than for them to know Christ. But more often than not, I can worry about judgment, potential pain, awkwardness, and ultimately rejection. But Levi's response encourages us to remember and see clearly what we have been given, to keep it before our eyes so we can freely offer it to others that we can see these riches and invite them to share in them with us and to do it regardless of the outcome. It's completely likely that many of Levi's friends only came for the food and for a good time, but he didn't care. He knew what he was given and he was going to make sure that he provided every opportunity for his friends and for his loved ones to see Jesus. Jesus gave Levi an invitation but he was going to make sure that all of his friends were on that guest list. And so as Levi receives this unlikely invitation and he throws this party, we see in our second point that some unwelcome guests start to arrive. As with most parties, some intruders tend to arrive, and who better to spoil a party than the Pharisees and the scribes? It's unlikely that they were invited to this party. They wouldn't have associated with uh, tax collectors. But they show up regardless because they want to see what trouble Jesus is getting into now. They remind me of Paddington's neighbor, Mr. Curry, which if you haven't read or seen Paddington, I say that you go and resolve that as soon as you leave this worship service. You see, Mr. Curry is one of Paddington's neighbors. He doesn't trust the bear, and he cannot understand why the neighborhood is so enthralled with him. He thinks that Paddington is only good for causing trouble, only good for causing a nuisance. So he thinks it's his responsibility to keep an eye on Paddington, to uh, be up in his second-story window, to peer down and always see what Paddington is doing because it's his duty to protect his neighborhood. He is, after all, the self-appointed commander of the community defense force. And in a similar way, the Pharisees know what's best for their religious community. They think that it's their duty to keep an eye on this Jesus character. However, they are slow to approach him directly. They stay on the outskirts of the party. Just like Mr. Curry looking through a second-story window, they don't approach him directly. They find it better to grumble to his disciples first, which makes sense because, in my experience, it's always easier to interrogate somebody's motives when they're not in the same room as you. And they ask Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It simply didn't make sense to them. Jesus was a religious teacher and figure in this community. He was supposed to be on their team. So why was he associating with unclean, impure sinners? Or, as Mr. Curry might ask, why is that promiscuous bear being so friendly to the neighborhood riffraff? And why do they seem to enjoy him so much? You see, the Pharisees grumble their question to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus is the one who answers it. He overhears this question, and he interjects. And he reveals to them that this isn't simply a party, but this is a house call. If you look at verse 31, it reads, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus is not simply a house guest. He is the divine physician who has come to heal sick and dead sinners. In this answer to the Pharisees, we see that it both outlines Jesus' ministry and exposes the heart of the Pharisees. And so the first thing we see is his ministry. Whenever Jesus says that I have come throughout the Gospels, it means that he's letting us in on a key aspect of his ministry, a key aspect of why he came to us in the first place. And in this case, he's saying that he hasn't come to give an attaboy to those that think they are right, to the religious elite of his time. He has not come to commend those that turn their back on sinners, outcasts, and strangers. Instead, he has come to approach and to save people who are honest with themselves and who see that they are sinners, who know that they deserve judgment. You see, Jesus doesn't care if we have theological precision. He doesn't care if we have catechized children, a perfect family, or faithful finances, if it means that we are condescending, insular, and prideful towards the very people that he calls us to love, the very people that he came to love, the very people that are just like you and me, but for whatever reason, we deem them not so. And so Jesus came to save people who can take a look in the mirror and actually be honest with themselves. We are no better off than the next person before the face of God in particular. And so that is why Jesus came for us. He knows that we cannot save ourselves. He knows that we are no better than anybody else. And he calls us to see that clearly, to see that he came to save and call sinners, which means that he came to call and to save you and me. And second, we see that his answer exposes the heart problem of the Pharisees. He's showing that they have illegitimately deemed certain people unsavable and unworthy before the face of God. They have chosen to not love the sinner. They have forgotten that they are ultimately in the exact same boat as Levi and all of the guests at that party. They have propped themselves up as people who are better, as people who are more worthy of grace. They remind me of Mrs. Turpin, who is the main character of the Flannery O'Connor story, Revelation. You see, Mrs. Turpin spends sleepless nights naming off social classes and thanking Jesus that she is not like those that she deems to be beneath her, those who she calls white trash, minorities, the homeless, the poor. She views herself as someone who always has a little of everything, but also has the given wit to use it right. She is confident in the world she knows, but she's even more confident that Jesus agrees with her in that world. But then, at the end of the story, she sees a revelation while she is feeding her pigs. She sees a revelation that turns that world upside down. The story reads, a visionary light settled in her eyes, She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. Battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once. Recognized as those who, like herself and Cloud, her husband, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. 
They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She sees a picture of heaven. She sees a picture of the priorities that Jesus says in Scripture, and it turns her world upside down. And whether we like it or not, more often than not, we are Mrs. Turpin. We so often start out like Levi, but so often end up like Pharisees. We think that we know how the world ought to work. We think that we have the same order that should work. And we are thankful that Jesus has made us like us and hasn't made us like the people that we try to keep away from our table. And if you don't think that this is true of you, then how would you react if somebody invited somebody off the street into worship service tonight? How would you react to the single mother with the uncontrollable children? How would you react to the person with neon hair, innumerable tattoos, and tattered clothing? The people that don't look like us. Or perhaps you would approach them, but then you found out that they hold radically different political, ethical, and personal views from your own. Are they still worthy of the invite to come and see Jesus? Would you still invite them to come to see and to taste those living waters? I'm skeptical for myself at times. You see, when we're... uh, When we come face to face with people that are unlike us, we come to see what we functionally believe about the world and what Jesus says about the world that we occupy. You see, we come to understand that we don't have problem with sinners in the abstract. What we have problem with are actual human beings, actual human beings that aren't like us, that we think are disgraceful, sinful, unlike us and unworthy because we have bought into the lie that we are worthy that we are more savable, that Jesus loves us more. And so Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of our hearts and he shows us, just like he showed Mrs. Turpin, just like he showed the Pharisees, that his system of virtues, his view of the world is much different than our own. He has come to seek the lost, to seek and to save them, which means that he came to seek me, he came to seek you, but he also came to seek them. We are all unwelcome guests, but Jesus nevertheless drew near to us to provide us an invitation of mercy, an invitation to see him and to realize that we are no better off than anybody else, that we are all in need of that same grace before God. And when we realize this, then we too can approach the stranger with mercy and to offer them to come and to see Jesus. And so... As we see this reaction to these unwelcome guests, we see that Jesus makes another shift and he talks about his unprecedented arrival, which is our final point. The Pharisees are dissatisfied with the outcome to their first question, so they decide to change tactics. They decide to interrogate Jesus about the disciples instead. You see, they've gained no footing, and so they ask not why they eat with sinners, but they ask Jesus, why do your disciples eat at all? which is the type of question that you ask when you've already lost the debate, in my opinion. You say, I'm not making any headway with this Jesus guy, so let's attack his disciples, hope we can get some grounding there. And they even try to add clout to this argument by talking about their disciples and by talking about the disciples of John the Baptist. They say, well, Jesus, our disciples pray every day. Our disciples fast all the time. And you know who else's disciples do that? John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist, Jesus, the one that prepared the way for you, 
the one who baptized you? Why aren't you like him? Why aren't your disciples like his disciples? And in characteristic fashion, Jesus answers them in a way that they probably didn't want and didn't expect. He answers them with an analogy and with two parables. The first thing he says in verse 34 is, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's already hinting that his mere presence and his mere arrival marks a very different set of rules, a very different set of circumstances, just by him being with them. And then he shares two parables. The first parable is about mending a garment. He says that if you rip an old garment, you don't tear a piece off a new garment. Because if you do, you ruin both of them. The new one is torn, and the old one has a piece of fabric attached to it that doesn't match, that doesn't fit, and that simply doesn't work. It'd be like noticing that your buddy has a rip in his work jeans, and you say, well, I have a brand new pair of Levi's if you want to hack those up. No, it doesn't make sense. And his second parable is very similar. It's about properly storing wine. He says in verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. You see, new wine was highly fermented and so it needed fresh wineskins. These fresh wineskins were made out of leather so as the wine would expand in these early stages, the leather would expand with it. And so what Jesus is saying is that if you take an old wineskin, one that has already gone through this process, one that has already been expanded to the furthest extent it can be, this new wine will agitate it to the point of bursting, and you'll ruin a good piece of leather, and you'll ruin a good drink of wine. And so Jesus gives him a question and gives them two parables. And what are we supposed to make with them? You might be thinking that this has gained, given us no more clarity, but Whenever Jesus gives parables throughout Scripture, we have to remember that he always has one point in mind. There are a lot of things that he might talk about, many things that are worthy of our investigation, but he always has one point. And the point that Jesus is trying to make at this, po- at this point <laughs> is that it is appropriate for his disciples to be feasting. It is appropriate for them to be acting the way that they are, just like it's appropriate to keep that new garment intact just like it's appropriate for wedding wedding guests to feast at a wedding, and just like it's appropriate to store new wine in new wineskins. He's saying that there's a time and a place for fasting, but this is not that time. Jesus has come, and so it's a time for celebration. He came not only to save sinners, but he came to feast and celebrate with them in rich communion. He came to share a meal with them so that they could see and know him and that they could be seen and known by him. But nevertheless, Jesus does say in this passage that there is a time for fasting. Fasting was common practice in the Old Testament for marking times of mourning, marking times of sin or great distress. And he says that the time for mourning will come, the time for fasting will come when the bridegroom is taken away, taken away forcibly even. Then there will be occasion for mourning. And when he says this, he's talking about the time between his death and his resurrection, where everything seemed lost, where all the hope in this coming Messiah, the Messiah that would install the kingdom of God, would be snuffed out, all of his progress gone, all of the hope that came with him seemingly lost. This is a period that is fit for fasting. 
And Jesus is reminding his disciples ahead of time that when that time comes, it will be appropriate to mourn. It'll be appropriate to fast. But regardless of what we may think, Jesus is not talking about the time that we live in now. We might look around and say, well, Jesus isn't with us at this moment. He is not with us in person. We don't see him face to face. Is this a time for mourning? Is this a time for fasting? Well, Jesus is apart from us in a sense, but he also reminds us in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And he adds in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, Jesus' death gave way to resurrection. That resurrection gave way to an ascension. And that ascension gave way to him coming next to the Lord and being seated at his right hand. And after he sat down at the right hand of God, he sent his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit to come and to unite us to himself so that even though Christ is away, we don't need to mourn because he is with us. We are united to Christ by the power of his Spirit. We don't need to mourn because he is always near. Jesus' coming is unprecedented in his arrival, but it's also unprecedented in his absence. Even though he's gone, he is closer than ever before. And it gives us the power to be united to him as we await for him to return. And so we see that Jesus' arrival, it's something that is truly, truly cataclysmic, something that's truly unprecedented because he invites us sinners to see ourselves, to see him, and to follow him. There is no us in them. We are all sinners in need of grace. And Christ has come to set captives free. He gives us an invitation of mercy. And, though, and through it, we are given everything. And because of that, because everything's been given to us, because we've been given all of these riches of grace, the only appropriate response is to celebrate. And as we await his return, as we still mourn and as we still long, we are still invited to a feast each and every week in worship Here and now, Jesus lifts our eyes up to see him, to cast our gaze upon him, to see that, yes, we may mourn, but we do not mourn as those without hope. We are not a people that are marked by fasting, but a people marked by feasting. He feeds us through his word and through his sacrament each and every week. He reminds us that he has gone ahead to prepare a feast for us, his bride, and that we get a foretaste of that feast in worship every single Sunday. It is the great privilege of why we join together in worship. It is why we ask others to come and to see Jesus, to come to this feast, to pull up a seat, not just for our friends, not just for our family, but for those that have nothing in common with us, those that look unlike us, those that we think might be unworthy of God's grace. He calls us to remember that we are just as unworthy. He calls us to see him, to see ourselves clearly and to follow him, and to call others to come and to follow him as well. He reminds us that it's appropriate to celebrate, that we are a people marked by feasting and not fasting. And yes, we still have reasons to mourn in this world, but we don't mourn without hope. Yes, we aren't currently with Jesus, but the Holy Spirit has united us to him, 
And so we know that Jesus is near to us here and now, that he raises us up even now to worship with all of the saints in heaven. Everybody that is united to Jesus, we are all worshiping together in this very moment. And therefore, we see that Jesus sets a table for us each and every week. We're not simply called to forget the pain and suffering of this world, but we are reminded that his coming has given us a reason to celebrate in the midst of a sin-cursed world. He has brought life out of death. He has brought sight out of blindness. And so he invites us to feast amidst famine. So let's come to him. Let's feast and celebrate because we know the riches of grace that we have been given. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that although we were sinners, you saw us, you approached us, and you called us to come to see and to follow you. Lord, we are all in need of your grace. We never graduate beyond your grace, but we need it every single day. It is in you that we live and we move and we have our being. We don't simply get saved by grace and then check that at the door, but rather it's your grace that sustains our steps each and every day. Lord, that though we were ultimately unlovable, despicable, unworthy of any kindness, sinners that were delighting in our wickedness, you nevertheless chose to come and to approach. So I pray that as you have done that for us, that we can first rest in your grace, first rest in knowing that you have done that for us, But as we rest in you, may we also be encouraged and propelled to move outward towards others. May we move towards those that we might think are unworthy, unclean, Lord. May we see ourselves when we see them. And remember that you told us, as you welcome the least of these, you are welcoming me. Lord, you call us to not only love the lovable, but to love the unlovable, precisely because you have done the same. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given us everything, that your son has come, that he lived a perfect life for us, that he died on the cross for our sins, that we have been reconciled to you, that we call upon you not just as our creator and Lord, but we can call you our father, that you invite us to a family feast each and every Sunday, and that we look forward to the glorious reality where we will be face to face with you, adorned as the bride, spotless, all of our disgrace and shame gone, that you will wipe away every tear, and that you will invite us to dine at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So as we await that day, give us strength by the power of your Spirit at work within us. May we look to you and delight in you alone. And so as we go out into this week, Lord, strengthen us by your Spirit. May we look to Christ, see him, glorify him, and enjoy him forever. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.